So since some of you may not know me, I'll introduce myself just briefly. My name is Andrea Fella, and I've been practicing Vipassana meditation for about 10 years now. And I quickly um, got into intensive retreat practice. So I've, in the past 10 years, sat a number of um, three-month retreats at IMS. I've sat a number of long retreats in Burma. At one point, I ordained as a nun in Burma. So I really um, love the long retreat practice, but I also have a love for daily life practice, which is how my, my practice began in the first place. I also have been involved in the service aspect, primarily through being a retreat manager, both at, at Spirit Rock, and um, currently I'm retreat manager for a retreat that we hold in Burma in January. Um, it's a, an interesting retreat that is taught jointly by a Burmese meditation teacher and two Western teachers. So it's a lovely three-week retreat in the Sagain Hills in Burma. And I, have be, I began teaching um, in Redwood City about three years ago. Gil Fransdahl is my main mentor, and he asked me to start teaching. So I primarily teach in Redwood City at uh, the IMC Center there, and I teach retreats and day-longs and classes there. So usually when, or often, I guess, when we think about our meditation, sometimes we focus on the calm, the bliss, the peaceful states that emerge in our meditation practice, and that kind of comes to the forefront for us. But what I'd like to talk about tonight is something a little more ordinary. Mindfulness itself is a very ordinary quality. Our experience uh, in our day is very ordinary. So I'd like to talk about these qualities the ordinary qualities of our life that can transform us. So the title of tonight's talk is The Ordinary That Transforms. Mindfulness itself is a very ordinary quality of mind. It's nothing obscure, it's nothing rarefied, It's a very simple quality of mind that we experience from the time that we're children, really. A working definition of mindfulness is an awareness of what is happening while it's happening. Now, a form of awareness happens all the time, and that's not necessarily mindfulness because we're aware all the time, even if we're not particularly conscious of what's happening while it's happening. For example, uh, a a number of years ago, I was talking to a friend and um, pointed out to her or asked her something about the sound of morning doves. I said, you know the sound that morning doves make when they fly away, don't you? And she said, no, I don't know that sound. And I said, oh, I'm sure you do. You've heard it hundreds of times. The next time you ride your bike down the road, pay attention when the morning dove flies away and you'll recognize that sound. And the next day she came back to me and she said, you're right, I know that sound. But she hadn't really been conscious of it in the moment. So that's the difference between awareness and mindfulness. Mindfulness is... It's it's like the air we breathe, actually. It happens to us all the time throughout our day. It's not something that we even actually have to try to do. It will happen to us in brief moments all the time throughout the day. So, for example, if you are washing your hands and you put your hands in the water and it's, it's really hot, you know that it's hot when it's happening. There's a moment of mindfulness there, of recognition. Oh, this is hot. And that kind of thing happens all the time to us but we don't typically pay attention to the fact that that has happened, that we're aware of what's happening while it's happening. So, for example, right now, can you, how hard is it for you to be aware of the fact that I'm speaking while I'm speaking? It's really quite simple. Once I've called your attention to it, it's right there. 
or the pressure of your butt on the chair. It's right there once I bring your attention to it or your feet on the floor. It's very simple, very obvious quality of mind. But we don't usually recognize it as a valuable quality of mind. In fact, it just goes right by. It's, it's like the air we breathe. It's so ubiquitous that we don't notice it, but it's very powerful. It's very healing. It's very helpful to us. It has the power to, to teach us, to show us how to live our lives skillfully, how to avoid unskillful actions. And not only that, it can take us to the place where we become completely free from the ways in which we react to the world and suffer. So when I say that mindfulness helps to show us what's skillful and unskillful, I'll I'll give just a brief definition of what I mean by skillful and unskillful. Unskillful mind states are those that lead us more deeply into suffering. They tend to produce unskillful actions and cause, cause all kinds of repercussions and difficulties in our lives. So anger, for instance, is, tends to be an unskillful mind state. It leads to unskillful actions, to things we regret, things we wish we hadn't done. Skillful mind states are those that lead us away from suffering. These are ones that tend to be motivated um, by non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Now, this is not a moral judgment about what is good and bad. It's really a very pragmatic um, exploration. What is it that leads us to suffering? What is it that makes us unhappy and frustrated and impatient and angry in our lives? So what leads to those unskillful mind states? And what leads us out of them? That's the definition of skillful and unskillful. What helps us get away from suffering or what takes us into suffering? So how does mindfulness help to teach us about this? This very ordinary quality of mind that just happens all the time. How does it teach us about this? Well, part of the the thing with the mindfulness showing us about this is that we need to sustain the mindfulness over a period of time. Now, that's a little more challenging. That's not something that um, happens so naturally. That's the concentration aspect of our practice. But when we can sustain that mindfulness, just that very simple, ordinary quality of mind, if we can sustain it over a period of time, what starts happening is that we begin to notice the ramifications of our actions, the ramifications of our mind states. So, for instance, if you um, pay attention to an unskillful mind state such as anger, if you're mindful of that mind state, you start to see pretty quickly that it's an unpleasant experience. Not only does it lead to unpleasant consequences often, but it itself is an unpleasant experience in the moment. So we start to see with mindfulness that this is something that is not so helpful to us. And actually, we don't really have to do much with that knowledge. We don't necessarily even have to try to abandon the, uh, the anger the next time it comes up. We may. We, it can take time. This, this can be a process. But over time, what starts to happen is that the mind will abandon these unskillful states simply because it sees the suffering. It knows where it's headed. It knows where it's headed. And it goes, I don't think so. Once it starts to see where it's headed, once it really knows through experience, through mindful experience, the suffering that results from that mind state, it's like it lets go of it almost automatically. Now, again, that can take some time, but mindfulness will lead us that way. Simply paying attention to our experience will lead us that way. So that's the way unskillful mind states are abandoned through mindfulness. How about skillful ones? So if we pay attention to 
skillful mind states like compassion, generosity, loving kindness, equanimity, tranquility. If we start to pay attention to those mind states, we begin to see that they benefit us and that they function and serve us well in the present moment. So again, the uh, the mind will kind of incline more naturally to those mind states once they are known in the, in the mindfulness. It's almost like magic. It felt like magic to me when I first started experiencing this happening. But it's just a very simple, natural effect of bringing mindfulness to our experience. It creates the conditions for Uh, unskillful, unwholesome mind states to arise less frequently in the future, and it creates the conditions for skillful, wholesome mind states to arise more frequently in the future. So mindfulness is kind of like a wedge. It cuts through our experience and shows us the way. It shows us the path through our experience away from the unwholesome and towards the wholesome. It's said that there's a, there's a list called the seven factors of awakening, and mindfulness is the first of the list. And the others in that list are investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And it's said that if you simply bring mindfulness to experience, the others will follow. It's kind of like the prow of a boat in the water and that the other qualities follow in its wake. It's a very skillful, very wholesome mind state to cultivate and it's a very ordinary quality in our life. It's nothing rarefied or obscure. It's a very simple quality of mind. All that it takes is noticing it, actually paying attention to when it happens. Notice when you're mindful. Just that piece, noticing when you're mindful, will have a great impact on developing the cultivation of this this wholesome quality of mind so that it appears more frequently for us. So this very ordinary quality of mind, mindfulness, is well worth our attention. I think it was really the brilliance of the Buddha to highlight this quality of mind to say this is worth cultivating. So that's the ordinariness of the quality of mindfulness. And now I'd like to talk a little bit about the ordinariness of our experience itself. The Buddha had several ways or a couple of main ways of describing what we are as a person, what we are as a psychophysical being. And I'll talk about two of those main ways. One is called the teaching on the six sense doors. And one is called the teaching on the five aggregates. So the first one, the teaching on the six sense doors, this is basically a way of dividing up the body and the mind to describe what what we are, how we experience our world. So the six sense doors in Buddhist psychology are basically the five usual sense doors that we consider, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, plus the sense door of the mind, which is what in Buddhist um, psychology is known as the sixth sense. So each of the, uh, the sense bases Basically, our whole experience comes to us through these six sense doors. We experience sights, sounds, cells, smells, tastes, and touch. Touch through the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, and the skin. And we experience thoughts. We experience emotions through our mind. There's an analogy about this these six sense doors um, that my teacher in Burma gives. He uses an analogy of a match, a striker, and a flame. So with each of these sense doors, the eye and the sight, those are two separate things. And then when they come together, when they meet, there is the consciousness of the seeing, 
So the uh, eye is like the striker. The match is like the thing we're seeing. And when we strike the two together, there's the flame. And that's the consciousness of what is arising. So all of our experience through our, nothing that we, that we experience can't be seen in one of these six sense doors. So again, this is very ordinary, these experiences. This is just what we experience all the time throughout our day. One of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, likes to say with some regularity, only six things ever happen. That's all that ever happens to us, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, and things arising in the mind. It doesn't it doesn't much matter for the purposes of mindfulness what we bring our attention to. It's simply seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching and experiencing things in our mind. Now, we happen to like certain configurations of seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching and thoughts in the mind better than we like other ones. So that's something we need to work with. But for the purposes of mindfulness, for the cultivation of mindfulness and for waking up, it really makes absolutely no difference what is happening in our experience. And the Buddha actually <coughs> taught this in one, in one sutta. And I, I love this sutta. It's got kind of a nice poetic quality. And it's short, so I'll read it to you. The title of this sutta is the roots of everything. And he says, all things are rooted in desire. They come to actual existence through attention, originate from contact, and converge on feelings. The foremost of all things is concentration. All things are mastered by mindfulness. Their peak is wisdom, their essence, liberation. All things merge in the deathless, and Nibbana, or freedom, is their culmination. So that's all things he's talking about. Not simply blissful states in concentration, not simply states of clarity. All things lead to liberation. All things culminate in Nibbana. So there's no part of our normal everyday experience that is not worth paying attention to. The ordinariness, the very ordinariness of our experience can be the ground for our freedom, for our waking up. So as we start to see this process of life, just this seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, and things happening in the mind, as we start to see this happen, we begin to get a sense that this whole thing is just a process. It's really just an ever-changing flow of things happening. Things appear, they disappear. Things arise and pass away. Over and over again, things come and go, come and go, come and go through these six sense doors. And when we start to get a taste for the flavor of just this process is happening, we uh, begin to see that there's not really anybody there doing anything. Seeing sees, hearing hears, thinking thinks, knowing knows. This recognition frees us from some of our identification with our experience. And this identification where we latch onto something and say, this is mine, that's where a lot of our suffering comes from because when we've identified with something and said, this is mine, the law of impermanence is going to take it away from us at some point. And we will suffer for that. We, even the coalescing of a particular identity. I'm a dancer, for instance. I used to be a dancer. I'm a dancer. I can no longer dance, so I'm no longer a dancer. The loss of that identity for me was really painful. It was an extremely painful process of grieving for years. So there's suffering around this identification. At one point on a retreat, I began to experience this quality of just the process, just things happening and nobody there doing anything, just simply things 
happening by themselves. And I was quite surprised at how incredibly relieving it was. When I had originally heard this teaching of not-self, this teaching of there's nobody really here, it's a little bit scary. It's not something that we tend to really want to agree with or, 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 or you know, say is true. It strikes us as so wrong and so um, horrible to conceive of not being here. It's like death. We think of it like death. But in my experience of it, in my actual experience of it, it was a huge relief to not have that be there. And I came back and reported it to my teacher, and he kind of smiled and said, no self, no problem. And it was really true. So the second of the teachings around the psychophysical being is the teaching on the five aggregates. An aggregate is kind of a technical sounding term, um, but the Pali term for this is called skanda, or kanda in Pali, skanda in Sanskrit. And the term kanda in Pali means heap or bundle. You would carry a kanda of sticks with you. It's that kind of a general a term. So this term in Pali is not t terribly technical. It's simply heaps of things. So the Buddha identified these five heaps of things that make us up. And what I like about this um, teaching in contrast to the six sense spaces is that the six sense spaces focuses on the body. Seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching are five sixths of the six sense spaces. And the mind is one of the, of the six sense spaces. In the teaching on the aggregates, it's reversed. There are five aggregates, and four of them have to do with how the mind is broken into, into parts, different functions of the mind. And one of the five aggregates is the body. So it's exactly reversed in some ways. So it, it allows us to explore our psychophysical being either in more fine detail in our body or in more fine detail in our mental experience. So these, um, these five aggregates are, one of them is the body, as I mentioned, and the other four, they are consciousness, perception, feeling, and I'll define these more clearly in a moment, and what are sometimes called mental formations. So consciousness is just the quality of mind that knows, just the simple bare knowing part. Perception is the, is the part of our mind that recognizes what we're knowing. It, it's connected to memory. So it's the part of our mind that recognizes, oh, this is a white piece of paper, or this is hardness, or this is a clock even. So there's many levels of perception. There's the perception of very bare experience down to the level of just vibration and heat and cold. And there's the perception of person, carpet, wood, floor. All of these things are perception. The feeling part is whether something is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that's a very basic fundamental quality of our experience. It happens in every single moment of experience that every single sense contact either has some quality of pleasant, some quality of unpleasant, or some quality of neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And then built on top of those three, the consciousness is kind of the base, essentially. It's the, the place where we first meet our experience and then there's the recognition of what it is and the feeling about what it is and built on top of those bare aspects of experience is a whole bunch of reactions a whole bunch of thoughts and feelings and moods and just about everything else you can imagine in your mind goes into that heap of stuff 
So that's the mental formations piece. And then there's the body. So this teaching for me is not simply something um, that is uh, an intellectual teaching. It's actually something that I pay attention to in my actual experience. And I find it helpful in particular in, in looking at you know, all the reactivity that we have is mostly in that area of the formations, the mental formations. So as we start to pay attention to our actual experience, we begin to contact just the bare sensations of pressure, vibration, coolness, heat, that kind of thing. The closer we get to, to those sensations, the closer we are to the bare knowing of experience. So the consciousness is kind of the base, as I said. And on top of that are perception and feeling. So those three together are really, you can't really separate them. And in fact, the Buddha said you can't really separate these three qualities. And I'll read to you what he said about that. Because for me, it was, a, it was kind of a revelation. Because I kept trying to say, well, well how are these different? And what, how do they separate? What's the separation between these three? So he says, actually he's responding to a question. Somebody says, feeling, perception, and consciousness, are these states conjoined or disjoined? And is it possible to separate each of these states from the other in order to describe the difference between them? And the Buddha replies, Feeling, perception, and consciousness, friend. These states are conjoined, not disjoined. And it is impossible to separate each of these states from the other in order to describe the difference between them. For what one feels, that one perceives. And what one perceives, that one cognizes. So we really can't tease these apart completely, but it's like looking at three different facets of the same object. There's either the pleasant-unpleasant aspect, there's the recognition aspect, or there's just the bare knowing aspect. So anytime we're contacting either the feeling of pleasant-unpleasant or neutral, or we're contacting the um, perception of uh, uh, heat, cool, hard, soft, anytime we're contacting those things, we're getting close to the actual quality of knowing, the consciousness that's underneath. And that, as we begin to actually experience and touch into this direct quality of knowing, we start to see that it's got some beautiful qualities. It's, it's clear, it's luminous, it's non-judgmental. It's, again, this is simply happening in our experience all the time. Every single moment of our experience has this consciousness, this knowing, this perception, this feeling. Every single moment of our experience has these things. So this, this is just something that's happening all the time. But as we can begin to touch into the fact that it is happening, we can start to see and feel and experience these actual qualities of the consciousness itself. Consciousness doesn't judge what it experiences. It simply illuminates it. It simply shines the light of knowing on it. It's kind of like a mirror. If you have a mirror and you can know something about the reflective qualities of the mirror, you can know how, how good the mirror is by, by how clearly it reflects, but it doesn't matter what it's reflecting. It can be reflecting a decaying corpse, or it can be reflecting a beautiful landscape. The quality of the reflecting of the mirror is unchanged. And that's the way the consciousness functions. It does not care what it's knowing. Its function is simply to know. And as we can touch in more, we can begin to experience the fact that It simply is just things arising in our experience. Everything is just coming and going. So how do we learn to see this knowing? How do we learn to to touch into actually this, this quality of knowing? 
I think I talked about this the last time I was here. Some of you may remember this, but one of the best ways that um, I know of to begin to touch into this quality of knowing is to notice the moment when you uh, come back from wandering in your meditation. See if you can really touch into that point. What happens? What's the difference in your experience in that moment that you become mindful again? You can't really know what it's like to not be mindful. But in that moment of waking up, there's like a lingering memory of what it was like. So there's a little bit of contrast and you can begin to sense what is it like? What does it actually feel like to be awake? What does this presence, this sense of awake feel like in your life? Just right now, can you feel a sense of presence, of awake? Now, for me, this was difficult when teachers were talking about feel what it feels like to be present. I had no idea what they were talking about for years. And it was through this exercise of looking at what is it, what is it like to uh, come back from being lost? I began to, to understand, oh, this is what it feels like to be awake. Wow, this is amazing. You know, there's a clarity here. There's a, a, a clearness to my experience. So paying attention to that moment and the benefit, one of the benefits of using that as an exercise that I found in particular was that uh, it really cut through the whole judging thing about getting lost because every time I got lost, it was an opportunity to see this difference. So it was, it was a great um, exercise for me, at least. I highly recommend it. It was, it was very powerful. Another um, way to begin to look at the knowing is really to pay attention to our ordinary experience. Just when we're sitting here or brushing our teeth or eating a meal or driving on the freeway, very ordinary experience when it's kind of neutral, that's a good time to check into what does it feel like to be awake? What does it feel like to be present? because there's not so much pulling us into the experience itself. So when you're brushing your teeth, for example, you know, you can, you can feel all the sensations, but it doesn't tend to be too, too exciting or too unpleasant. It's just kind of a thing that's happening every day. Um, but if we, if we can bring our attention, what does it feel like to pay attention to that? We can start to recognize this quality of knowing. It's helpful to use these more neutral experiences because when things are either really wonderful or they're really horrible, we tend to get caught in the thing itself. You know, when we're experiencing great states of happiness and bliss, it's kind of hard to say, well, what does it feel like to be experiencing this? Or when we're experiencing really unpleasant experience, again, we we tend to, to be more focused on the actual experience. So look at your everyday, ordinary, mundane experience and see if you can notice what it means to be awake in those experiences. This quality of knowing, paying attention to this awake, will begin to accumulate and help to wake you up in a way that is inestimable. It really is um, just something we have to work at and experience to really know the value of it. But I'm trying to hopefully communicate some of that value to you. Another way to begin to key into the knowing is if you can, uh, and this first happened to me when I was paying attention to something that was somewhat unpleasant, that I began to notice that there were kind of two states that happening in my mind at the same time. There was the, uh, it was an aversion that was happening. And I was noticing how unpleasant the aversion was. So I was noticing the unpleasantness of the aversion. But then at some point I began noticing that I was knowing the aversion. And when I noticed that I was knowing the aversion, I noticed that that it was neutral. There wasn't a pleasant or unpleasant quality to the knowing. The knowing itself is neutral. And if you can begin to key into that, you'll, get a, you'll start to get a taste for that knowing quality. So in our experience, 
If something is unpleasant, aversion is unpleasant, the knowing of it is neutral. So see if you can tune into that neutral quality of the knowing. So that so far I've talked about the ordinariness of mindfulness and the ordinariness of just our experience and how we can start to wake up through this ordinariness of our experience. The last thing I'd like to talk about tonight is a state of mind I ran into on this last three-month retreat I did this last fall. And I was uh, doing a kind of a different form of practice. I had injured, I have injured my back a little bit and I can't do the sitting meditation for 19 hours a day the way I used to be able to do. I can't do the slow walking. So um, I was, I'm lying on my back to do my still posture and I'm doing pretty fast walking in the walking practice. And at one point I began noticing in my walking meditation that I was just paying attention to pretty much everything that was happening. I wasn't trying to do a detailed um, awareness of the contact of the foot and the lifting of the foot and the touching of the foot. It was just a whole bunch of stuff happening. And I went and reported this to Joseph and he said, when you're doing walking meditation and you're doing a kind of a choiceless awareness in the way that you describe, He said, the thing that I found most helpful is to put your attention here in the area of the heart and pay attention to the knowing. So that was the instruction that he gave me. And I went off and tried that, you know, doing my walking meditation. I put my attention in the heart and just paid attention. Basically, I, I wasn't sure what he meant by paying attention to the knowing in the heart, but I put my attention here and just noticed what was happening. And the thing that became most obvious to me was clarity of mind. There was just this incredible clearness and brilliance of what was happening. There was completely ordinary consciousness, completely ordinary perception. It wasn't as if in, in uh, earlier times in retreats, when I was doing the very slow walking and the sitting meditation, um, whenever I would do that, I, if things would get broken up into all these little bits and I would see, you know, this consciousness get completely different. And the perception of what you're experiencing is completely different than normal everyday consciousness. But what I ran into on this retreat was a completely ordinary consciousness that was completely clear, completely present. It was really quite extraordinary. So this this quality of awakeness can be a very beautiful quality of mind. We can can bring this quality of awakeness to our daily life. Having touched into it on retreat, I can now experience it in my daily life. And, you know, it's quite extraordinary. Part of the reason it's so extraordinary, this very incredibly ordinary state of experience, just, you know, walking through a room and yet brilliantly clear. So that brilliantly clear part feels quite extraordinary. Part of the reason it feels extraordinary is because there's a continuity of the knowing that's coming. And that continuity of the knowing of experience puts you into a state of mind where there are no longer any unwholesome mind states arising. So no anger, no greed, no delusion is arising. And that state itself is quite an amazing state. The the term for that state of mind is the bliss of seclusion because we are secluded from all of those difficult mind states. So that, that state of continual knowing of even in just a very ordinary state of consciousness can take us into that state of the bliss of seclusion. So it feels quite extraordinary. There's a a poem that I'd like to share with you that kind of celebrates this extraordinariness of this completely ordinary experience. And some of you have probably heard this before, but um, it's worth reading and hearing again. It's called The Spontaneous Vajra Song from... uh, Venerable Lama Gendon Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher. 
Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all, has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically, again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It is like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you at every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Emaho, marvelous, everything happens by itself. So this very simple, very ordinary quality of mind feels extraordinary. And yet over time, what happens is that it too becomes ordinary. Nothing special, very simple. We come back to our life, but simply with clarity. And this is a space, a non-suffering space that we can live from. We can live from this space and begin to free ourselves from suffering. So we have a few minutes if there's any um, comments or questions. Uh, Could you comment on the practice of listening to the sensation of breath? Yeah, um, in the um, hearing meditation that I guided you through, there's a, there can be a kind of a receptive quality to the hearing where there's no effort. Really, we don't have to try to hear something because, you know, just as you're listening to me, it's almost automatic that the ear hears. So hearing tends to be a kind of a receptive, open, spacious type of practice. And that style of attention can also be brought to the sensations in our body. Only what tends to happen, at least for me, what tended to happen was that I tried to feel the experiences. It's almost like I was trying to construct the sensations of pressure, trying to really get in there. And yet when I began to explore it as though I was hearing the sensations, more receiving them, and just the sensations are happening already, kind of like the sounds are just happening. So it's kind of just directing our attention there and seeing what's there without any trying. So this is coming to that really, um, you know, effortless type of mindfulness. You know, mindfulness itself doesn't take much effort. Um, It's, you know, right here, right now, you can hear me. What takes the effort is just doing it over and over and over again. So if we can, um, you know, tap into that kind of receptive quality that happens in the um, hearing, it can be helpful to let us relax and have some um, less striving around our attending to the sensations in our body. And I found that the um, using the language of hearing the body um, sort of came to me because I, when I was in the Peace Corps, I was in this country um, in the South Pacific that used a pigeon language. And it used a, English words, but 
um, basically in this pidgin language. And their term for both hearing and feeling was harem, which basically meant hear, to hear. And so it occurred to me that maybe we could use that languaging, hearing our sensations to get a sense of that ease and receptivity of the mindfulness. Yes. Um, I love the, the whole no self, no problem thing. I think it's very beautiful. Where I get caught up on it, I'm hoping there might be some comment on this, is the self responsibility mm-hmm. you know, I feel towards the world or be responsible in some way. So the no self, no problem almost kind of breaks that. And I, and I see where I get caught up. I'm just wondering if there's any comments that we would make on Well, you know, I don't know exactly of any, I can't think of any right that come to mind about that, that the Buddha actually said. But in my experience, what happens is that as there is less self in the way, the um, experience is more naturally responsive. You know, that um, if something happens to you know, if somebody falls down or is, you know, getting ready to be hit by a car, you know, just automatically there's this movement to jerk them back. And, you know, so there's this kind of more automatic movement of uh, wholesome activity um, that can happen when our self isn't in the way. So it's, it's a paradox in some ways, you know, it's not quite like having a sense of self-responsibility, but there's more of the action of responsibility, I think, that happens when we don't have all of those identifications. Um, So you were talking about the five heats in Kanda, and um, where I start to get confused is the difference between that which is aware and consciousness. Mm-hmm. Because it seems like there's something observing consciousness or is consciousness that which is doing the observing? Well, this, um, this is one of the key, um, what do you call it, conundrums of Buddhism, you know, and different schools answer it different ways. So, um, you know, I can give you the different answers <laughs> Uh, of various schools, you know, some of them say that there is a kind of a pure consciousness that knows the knowing. Some of them say that um, a previous moment of consciousness is known by the next moment of consciousness, so that it's a different moment of consciousness, but it's the same type of thing. But really, I think what we need to do is just look in our own experience and, and not try to get caught up into what actually is it. Sometimes to me, it feels like there's a, a big knowing that just seems to know everything. And other times things seem very much broken up into little bits. And not to try to make our experience fit into one model or the other, but just to know what is happening right now, what is actually happening. I've always found that to be my, my mantra. You know, it's like, if I get confused, it's like, well, what is actually happening? With regard to that, um, that bundle, the, the consciousness feeling and perception. perception. Thank you. <coughs> That's all three, um, I don't know if it's a failing of the language or what have you, but I guess my question is, are those states in the way that they're bundled together subject to distortion? So if I use the word perception, I might, in, norm, in normal usage, I, w- I might suppose that that would be um, a perception that's, you know, colored or altered by my own experience and all that. But are those, like, true mind states that then might be when we're superimposed? Um, so I'm not completely sure I understand your question, but I'll, I'll try answering it in a couple ways, and I need to keep this short because... We're running out of time. Um, So I have experienced that those states of perception and feeling can be kind of distorted, you know, through all the other stuff. You know, that it it feels like they, you know, we, uh, one example, for instance, you know, I was on a retreat one time and I walked into a room and across the 
across the room I saw a shape and I watched the mind attempt to perceive this, you know, and it ran through a bunch of different things trying to figure out what it was. Oh, it's a distorted, it's, what is it? It was like a, a horrible being. And it took me a number of different tries before I realized it was a vase of flowers. You know, it was like, you know, it was seeing just form and color for a while. And so the perception itself was not really kicking in. Um, you know, what, what it wasn't really recognizing it. So that's one way that it can be distorted. Um, and then another way is that through emotions, we can, um, our feelings, the, the perception of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral can be, can be distorted. So if we're angry about something, maybe everything we experience has an unpleasant feeling tone. I've kind of noticed that at times. So there can be these filters. But I think at the core, at the, at the base, it's, uh, they're pretty pure and that what happens is that in all of that mental formation is where the, the, the distortion actually happens. So we do need to stop because it's 10 of 9. So um, if anybody wants to ask questions, I'm happy to stay around until 9, at which time we do need to leave. So let's just take five seconds of silence. May the beneficial effects of our practice together be offered to support the welfare and liberation of all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe. May all beings live with ease. May all beings be free. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.